All right, ready? It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We saw white smoke come out of the General Assembly today. A deal has been struck on Medicaid expansion. Yeah, so this morning, it wasn't long before the press conference happened that there was a news alert that we saw on Twitter that, hey, there's going to be a press conference. No one knows what it's going to be about. Speaker Moore and Senator Berger were having a joint press conference. And so you went and got the scoop. Yeah. And found out beforehand what it was going to be on, and there were a lot of folks there. Yeah, uh, we were stalking a legislator in House oversight, just waiting to have a conversation with him, and the alert came down, and I said, I'm going to go to the bathroom. But I kept going down to the first floor, saw the hospital association lobbyists there, the HHS crew, the liaisons were there, the hospitals are all lined up, and those seemed to be a lot of kind of excitement handshaking senator heiss comes into the little area in front of the press room representative donnie lambeth all the kind of cardinals of the general assembly the guys who are doing the drafting of legislation they're the big proponents in the house and senate and then we saw the entourage of speaker moore senator Berger, and they're going from that second floor down to the first floor and they march in and uh, Senator Berger opened up with a little joke. I thought that was funny because Nathan Babcock had said it to us in the hallway that a deal has been struck on the Moravian cookie being the cookie of North Carolina. But all that would be a, a <laughs> definite change in stance on the Senate side for them to take up these sorts of bills. Yeah, they don't like those Moravian cookies uh, like the House does. The bill has yet to be seen. Senator Berger did say in the press conference the bill should be out next week. They don't know if it'll be ready in time to have it voted on next week. But he outlined what is in the bill and what is not in the bill. In the bill is some certificate of need reform. Also in the bill, there is some sort of work requirement. We don't know what that looks like. And... Notably missing from the Senate's version of the bill, there is no SAVE Act. It requires passage of the 2023 budget. Yeah, I talked to a Senate Democrat about that today, and she didn't seem too pleased. I was like, hey, you know, you guys, you got a bill here. You got Medicaid reform. But yeah, there was a little bit of, why are they doing that? But here's the thing about, especially on that Senate side, they are always playing the long game, and you got to tip your hat. Senate plays the long game, so better get on that budget to ensure your highest priority passes this year, Medicaid expansion. Interestingly enough, both Senator Berger and Speaker Moore had said they hadn't spoken to Governor Cooper about this proposal, but they plan to talk to him this afternoon. And almost immediately, Governor Cooper put out a statement, and he did call it a monumental step but said that it should be effective immediately, not with passage of the budget. It does bring up this whole March deadline, something about the funding coming from the federal level, and do we check that box? I'm sure this is something 
Secretary Cody Kinsley will work out as our HHS secretary with the federal government. So there does seem to be like we're going to miss this deadline. There is still a lot to learn about this deal. The bill itself will be reviewed and read and we'll check in with various stakeholders on all sides of the debate. Additionally, we've been covering this for the last couple of weeks that medical marijuana was moving through the Senate. It passed the Senate again this week. They had to have two votes on it because it has a finance portion. And both days they voted on it at 420. There were a lot of jokes about that. I decided not to make that tweet of the week. (laughs) Yeah, so 420, there's been some misreporting on what 420 stands for. Someone said it was like because of... April the 20th is when you celebrate marijuana. You know where 420 comes from? I think it's a police code, isn't it? Mm -mm. No, I don't know. It's the time of day where kids come home from school. That time between coming home from school and their parents coming home from work, 420 is the perfect time to smoke marijuana. How did you know that? Because I'm 51 and I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. You know my feelings on the D.A.R.E. programs. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, podcast partner over here has never smoked a cigarette, <laughs> has never smoked pot, yeah. but she has done eight balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Take that back. Additionally, on Monday, rumors started circulating about an abortion bill coming in the House and that the House Republican caucus was going to caucus on Tuesday and present a bill this week or possibly next week. Tuesday came, Republicans met all day, and it appears there isn't a consensus yet. A lot of disappointment, I know, uh, among leadership, which was kind of hoping for a easier path. We talked about this a few weeks back, but this week the literacy test bill began to move. This is a constitutional amendment that's being considered by the House. Talked about it before, vestige of the Jim Crow era, 1900. We put this vile amendment into our Constitution, which requires a literacy test in order to vote. Now, we know that this was applied mainly to black North Carolinians, freed slaves, as a way of keeping them from being able to vote because we know learning to read while in slavery was something that was either shunned or not allowed. 123 years later, we are looking at taking this out of our Constitution. We'll continue to track that. This week at the legislature, there were folks lobbying for a heartbeat bill. It was social workers advocacy day. They said 700 folks were there for that. And also our reliable everyday lobbyists (laughs) for the convention of states. So persistent, aren't they? Yeah. Those folks are there all the time. Yeah. So they want to rewrite the constitution, put in some provisions, I guess, around term limits or things like that. And they tend to have more of a conservative vantage point on how they view the Constitution. I had a conversation with a liberal lobbyist this week, and I think I suddenly realized why this bill is not moving in the General Assembly. Because they would also like to rewrite the Constitution? Yeah. The lobbyist asked me, well, what's the Committee of State's what do they want again? I said, well, they want to rewrite the Constitution. And she said, I want to rewrite the Constitution. So 
therein lies your problem with the Committee of State's legislative agenda. But yeah, again, they were all over the building. This week was kind of a nightmare, Sky, getting in and out of the building. There were a couple times where you and I would go to the back of the General Assembly, see a long line. Walk to the front. Walk to the front. See another Longer long line. line. Yeah, walk to the back again. We're just some entry point where we don't have to wait forever to get through security. We love security, by the way. You guys do a great job moving us through, but sometimes you got to get inside for a meeting. All right, we're getting prepared for Monday night. The State of the State address, Governor Cooper will come over from the mansion and address the House and Senate in a joint session. I think it it will be his last time doing so. It will. I bet it'll be somewhat celebratory because of this Medicaid expansion deal. They have a lot to be cheering for. There will be some folks that are upset about this deal. We know that. But we did learn some news today that the Republicans have someone who will be delivering their response. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson will present the GOP rebuttal to Governor Cooper's State of State address. And this is something that's usually been reserved for either Speaker Tim Moore or Senator Phil Berger. This will be Mark Robinson's first rebuttal to Governor Cooper. As Governor Cooper is going to come over, celebrate, talk about the great things North Carolina is doing, as we've been covering the last couple of weeks, there are a few bills that have passed this year or passed one chamber already that have been previously vetoed by Governor Cooper. And Will Doran of WRAL had put up a list of votes on bills that he had previously vetoed and kind of noted how many Democrats voted for each of them. We could start with House Bill 11. That's your deaf and blind schools bill that had three Democrats on that bill. So let's assume that they're staying with the bill. Right. You have enough. The anti-rioting bill. We saw that move a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Six Democrats voted for that bill. The most interesting, I think, was the hotel safety issue bill, which was previously vetoed and they didn't try to bring it back up. But it had 17 Democrats who voted for that bill this time. The only bill where you feel like the Democrats have a fighting chance at holding a veto for the governor would be the pistol permit repeal bill. No Democrats voted with the Republicans. We had a conversation with a couple Republicans this week about the veto. Their feeling is that once they get one veto overridden, floodgates, floodgated, it opens. And, And that is what happened to Governor Bev Perdue back in 2011 and 12. She was holding the veto for a little while, but once the they realized, Democrats realized, like, look, they couldn't hold it anymore, the floodgates opened up, and it was just override, override, override. We're going to continue to watch this. We have yet to have one. I had one senator say this week, he's like, I would like to be the first veto of the governor that we override. I want it to be my bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good luck there. We'll see what happens. More candidacy news, <laughs> substantiated rumors. State Senator Rachel Hunt jumped into the lieutenant governor race on Wednesday morning. She's a former House member. She's in her first term 
over in the Senate. That last name might sound familiar. She is the daughter of Governor Jim Hunt, and she is following a similar path to her father, who was lieutenant governor back in the 1970s. Her announcement was somewhat similar to Attorney General Josh Stein's in that not only was she announcing her candidacy, but she was uh, taking some shots at a Republican. Specifically, she said she's running for lieutenant governor to bring, quote, honor and integrity back to the office. That is a direct shot at Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. She is joining a very crowded field for lieutenant governor. And by the way, we expect it to get even more crowded. But Mm -hmm. we have former Spring Lake Mayor Chris Ray. I think he's run before Democrat. Uh, Republican Hal Weatherman. Uh, He's a Republican operative and a former aide to Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. We know Raymond Smith. I don't know if he's formally announced yet, but he's made some overtures to it. Congratulations to everyone who's declared. There's a list that's being kept by Dr. Michael Bitzer. If you follow him on Twitter, he has a running list of unsubstantiated rumors and substantiated uh, rumors about who's running in the various statewide offices. Had another rumor this week. Mm -hmm. Attorney General race. I talked to Sam Hayes, who is the general counsel to Speaker Tim Moore. I was waiting in line and, you know, again, had a lot of time to wait in line this week because the building was packed. And I said, Sam, we've been mentioning you as an unsubstantiated rumor for attorney general. And he just said, look, I've put together a team. I'm looking at this race seriously. I'm not prepared to make an announcement today. And I said, Sam, can I say this on the podcast? And he says, you can say that. So Sam's looking at the race. After she gave her first floor speech, Senator Lisa Grafstein got a lot of attention about how moving that speech was and got attention from us as well. So we reached out to her and sat down with her and talked to her about her life. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Lisa Grafstein, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. To start us off, tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district's special? So my district is Senate District 13, which is, I say North Raleigh. So it's Raleigh from basically the Beltline 440 up to Durant Road, which is a little north of 540, from 70 on the west to Capitol Boulevard, Noose River in the east. <clears throat> when I first came to Raleigh in 1990, that was considered North Raleigh. I think probably some people call it Midtown now, okay. <laughs> I think. But um, uh, so it's largely residential district. A lot of um, folks who moved here and over the last few decades have moved to that area. And it's kind of an interesting mix of folks who just got here, folks who've been here for 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, what I like about it uh, and what I, you know what I think is really special about it is that you really get folks from all the whole Triangle area. So folks who work in the park, a lot of folks who work downtown, a lot of folks who work at the General Assembly actually live in in uh, my district. It's got some great um, natural areas like Shelley Lake. It's just a great place to live and um, for some people to work and to play. The district itself, 
um, I think is also really diverse in terms of socioeconomic and um, ethnically and racially. Lots of great sort of um, ethnic shops along the, especially along the Capitol Boulevard corridor. So just folks really from all over the world live in North Raleigh, and it's just a great place to sort of get the vibe of what it, what it feels like to live in Raleigh. So you said 1990 is when you came to Raleigh. What brought you here? So um, my partner at the time and I were living in Delaware. We'd gone to college together and moved to Delaware after college. And then um, she got a transfer down here, and I was sort of roaming the earth after college (laughs) looking for the next thing and so I had nothing to keep me any particular place and came to North Carolina and ended up going to Carolina for law school um, and started there in 1992 and just never left. Like a lot of people I came and saw I liked it and I stayed. After law school you have been a civil rights lawyer I believe you had your own practice and worked for disability rights. Can you talk a little bit about your law career? Sure so while I was in law school I I took a class where we talked um, where the topic was around employment law, Um, and it was actually my first year writing class had to do with employment law. I was really got uh, got interested in that area, and you know there were not a lot of firms doing plaintiffs' employment work when I graduated, and my law partner at the time um, really wanted to do small business work and also criminal defense. So we had these sort of (laughs) sort of niche practice desires, and we ended up just starting a firm together uh, Mm -hmm. because we really couldn't you know, find a path forward to do the kinds of work we wanted to do in kind of existing firms. So 1995, we opened Grafstein and Walsic PLLC down on Hargett Street and practiced together for about 11 years. And she became a district court judge. And I practiced on my own for a while, doing mostly employment, discrimination, non-competes, contract work, things like that. And then in 2011, I went to work for a nonprofit called Disability Rights North Carolina, which does basically civil rights on behalf of people with disabilities. And I've been in a number of different roles there. I started out kind of leading a team that did work around community access for people with disabilities and um, then was legal director for a period. Now I'm litigation counsel. So I litigate cases around all sorts of issues in terms of you know uh, voting rights, Medicaid issues, you know, public accommodations, things like that. So really a wide variety of issue areas within the disability, um, within the disability work, but a lot of it really ties back to sort of my time um, in private practice and the work that I did there, which was really, again, about equal access for people in the context of employment. So it's been a little bit of a continuum, but um, the last 11 years have been really different in terms of the practice areas and the diversity of the practice, but just really rewarding in being able to work on behalf of folks in kind of a more holistic way. In private practice, you're doing individual cases and you, you have to keep the lights on and, and pay the rent and things like that. And so it's driven a, a lot by, you know, whether cases are individually good ones to litigate, whereas in kind of a nonprofit context, you can look at issues more holistically and try to figure out a solution to a problem. And sometimes litigation is the answer to that problem. Sometimes it's not the answer to that problem, but it gives you the chance to do um, maybe more impact work. So I've really enjoyed that part of it. Disability rights has a presence at the General Assembly. You must have been paying attention to public policy issues during your law practice time. Right. We Yeah. So just, And I actually still am employed by disability rights, sort of part-time doing a kind of a poor job <laughs> at the moment. But, um, it's going to get worse. Right. Yeah. It's going to get worse. Thanks. Um, so, yes, yeah, paying attention. And I, and I will say I, I probably owe a lot of apologies to our public policy staff over the years of things that I thought that they could just go get fixed if we could just get them to you know, pay attention to them. I I see now that it's a process. Let's talk about you growing up a little bit. Did you grow up in Illinois? No, no. I grew up um, on Long Island in New York. And I like to preface it by saying in a, in a sort of working class suburb, because a lot of times people think Long Island and they figure 
Great Gatsby, Montauk, you know, all yeah. the, <laughs> the things people associate. But um, it was really just a suburb. I grew up there, lived in the same house um, in a town called Massapequa mm-hmm. uh, for all my growing up it's where jerry seinfeld is from okay the stray cats if you're old enough to remember the stray cats um and some other folks too so um i grew up in long island and and just moved away for college my parents um i was the last of a a whole lot of kids and so after how many is a lot (laughs) i i grew up with six older brothers wow so after i went away to school they they moved back to new jersey where they had where they had met so um, it kind of was my end of the end of sort of going back to New York as a home, and um, you know. But I, I, my childhood was uh, sort of the typical. You know, we lived on a we called it a dead end at the time. I guess now it's called a cul-de-sac, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, played in the streets and things like that. It was just sort of a, a real classic kind of '70s youth. Did you get back much? No, not really. And um, you know, my son and I have gone a couple times just to you know go back for family weddings and to you know, spend some time in the city and things right. like that. But. Um, as I was growing up, we really didn't go into the city much. Uh, my father worked in the city, but my mother was very nervous about, you know, the big city, <laughs> right. and we didn't uh, we didn't kind of make a lot of trips out there. So, aside from your law practice, you have been quite celebrated as an attorney, and you have also been active in the community. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how that parlayed into getting involved in politics? Sure, I love that. You think I've been celebrated as an attorney, but um, yeah, I've been involved in a lot of bar activities mm-hmm. and a lot of sort of uh, campaigns for judges. So my, um, I guess several years out of law school, I um, was talking with a friend who was serving on the board of the North Carolina Association of Women Attorneys, and they were uh, they were about to elect their a slate of officers, but the person who was supposed to be the vice president had a family issue; she wasn't going to be able to do it. So this was my first foray into being on the board of a or being deeply involved in a bar organization. And so I said I would do it, and that really kind of led to a lot of other kind of engagement in the bar and a lot of opportunities that I had over the years to to be in in circles that that not every lawyer gets to be in. So I guess fast forward a little bit, I was talking with a friend who was being recruited to run for the North Carolina Court of Appeals. In the course of that conversation, it became apparent that she would need somebody to help with her campaign. So I was trying to help her find somebody. And we never really could find somebody. So I literally, I was in Chicago for a conference and I bought a book called How to Win a Local Election and decided that that seemed doable. So I started working on her campaign and then worked for some others over the years. And that was, that was sort of my, I guess, foray into politics to the extent that, you know, nonpartisan judicial campaigns are politics which they shouldn't be. (laughs) Um, So that was really my engagement with politics. I have not really been, I haven't really considered myself to be involved with politics. And even now I'm still kind of not sure that that's what I am, (laughs) but, but um, that was, well, you are. (laughs) Noted. noted. I know I I can be in denial all I want. (laughs) Um, So, you know, the, the bar involvement early on in my career really was sort of one of those things that I did not plan for, but it, like it, like I said, it did open up a lot of opportunities and gave me sort of uh, an opportunity to develop relationships that really have created a path. Um, I'm not somebody who ever set out to have a a career of X, Y, or Z, or to achieve a, a particular thing, particularly in politics, but just in general, I've just sort of had things come up that appear to be interesting or good opportunities and, you know, chase them a little bit like a squirrel <laughs> to some extent that there's, um, you know, it looks interesting. Let me try this. And uh, that has kind of led to where where I am now. I think a lot of times there's this notion that you look back and the path was clear all along. And I don't think that's really true. I think it's just you end up where you are and you can you can tell a good story about the path, but it's not necessarily something that was ever 
preordained, I guess. So it's 2022. After redistricting, a new Senate map is created, Senate District 13. It attracts a lot of candidates, especially on the Democratic side. Strong candidates. One, a sitting city council person here in Raleigh, throws his hat in the ring. You throw your hat in the ring. Can you talk about your decision to jump into that race? You had never been elected before at public office. Had to have been a big decision for you to make. It was. I I tell people that I I had black hair before this all started. (laughs) It's all gray now. Um, Well, before the Senate map changed, the House map changed. And so I was actually running for the North Carolina House for a period of a couple of months starting in, I guess, December of 21. New district or? New district. It was House District 66. And that started because I got a call from Lillian's List, which, you know, recruits candidates, female candidates who are pro-choice. This was a new House district and they were looking for somebody. And as you may recall, it was sort of a short turnaround time between the maps and the filing period. And they had talked to... um, someone else who'd connected them with me. And I, I knew Lillian's list from some of my earlier work in, in, in I guess, what we're calling politics. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and had been, you know, engaged with them in the past, really appreciated their work. So I got this call and um, they said, there's this new district and we're, you know, wondering if you would be interested or if you know anybody. And I said, oh, definitely not, um, but I'll think about who I might know. And so I hung up the phone and then I thought for a little bit about the kinds of issues I've been working on over the course of my career and, and the fact that maybe I could go try to work on some of those. You know, disability issues are not partisan issues, and knowing the makeup of the General Assembly, it seemed to me that having some of that experience and knowledge might be helpful in having those conversations. I thought, well, maybe why not me? So I started, um, I responded back and actually started calling around and asking folks about, can you have a job and work in the General Assembly? And <laughs> they told me yes, and I have to go back to those folks now and have another conversation, mm-hmm. I guess. So anyway, so that, that was what started me in the House race. So the House race was going on, you know, I was in that for a couple months, and I'll, I'm sure I'll get the timing wrong. I think the Senate maps changed in February of right. Gosh, that's just a year ago. A year wow. ago. Right. <laughs> and so when the maps changed again, on the House side, there were a couple of other candidates on the Democratic side. As you may remember, filing had been paused, so you kind of vaguely knew who might mm-hmm. run, but but it was not clear. I had not yet actually filed. It turned out that ultimately Sarah Crawford decided to run for the House instead of the Senate. And so Sarah Crawford also lives in House District 66. Mm-hmm. So one question became, <laughs> do I... Uh, continue to run in the House in District 66. And I talked with uh, Sarah a couple times, and we had good conversations, and she decided she was going to run for that seat. And initially, I was going to stay in it as well. And then there was actually, when the Senate maps came out, there was a a change in who was running. So initially, there was a woman who was a, a beloved teacher in the Leesville area who was going to be, who had filed to run for that seat. When she decided not to run, then I decided to make the switch over mm-hmm. to run for the Senate uh, for the Senate district. It was a very intense, it felt like a month, but it was probably 36 hours of decision making. So now you have been in the Senate for not very long. We're only a few weeks in and you gave a floor speech a couple weeks ago that gathered a lot of attention. Can you talk about that? Sure. So this was the the Parents' Bill of Rights that was filed, Senate Bill 49, that, um, you know, folks can look at it and and sort of see the, the gist of it a lot of it was, you know, repeating what some of the uh, the law is currently about what parents' rights are with respect to schools. But the provisions that had gotten a lot of attention and that obviously caught my attention were one provision that would have required 
and I guess it's that that as it's written right now requires that um, school personnel, including teachers, will have to out students to their parents if they ask to use another pronoun or to go by a different name. And another provision that would limit the extent to which it's possible to have any kind of visibility for LGBTQ people within certain grade levels. So it's a provision that limits the discussion of quote-unquote sexuality within certain grades, but that's not really defined in a way. And so presumably, if someone mentions their two moms, that's a discussion of sexuality. Whereas if they discuss their mom and their dad, that wouldn't be a discussion of sexuality. That's how I would interpret the kind of intent of the piece. You know, that's about visibility for LGBTQ people and concerns about um, erasure. My um, floor speech was uh, was about specifically those provisions and the fears that they had created, and I think legitimate fears amongst folks um, who have uh, trans family members, uh, who are teachers, uh, in terms of what they can share. Um, and so my floor speech was really about my growing up, um, LGBTQ, although it was just L, <laughs> it's, I, as, as a member of the LGBTQ community, um, I guess, and, and how important it was for teachers to be supportive uh, of students and have the ability to be supportive of students when it may not be easy for every kid to come out to their parents. And I think an important piece of that is the parent-child relationship is really important and valuable. And even though they don't always make they don't always make us feel this way, our kids, you know, <laughs> care what we think. And so um, I have a 24-year-old son, and I'm confident I don't know everything he's done, and and that's okay. It's just easier sometimes to to share first with a teacher or somebody trusted at school. So I shared my experience growing up and coming out at age 15 in the 80s when it was super not cool <laughs> to do so. Um, and how important it was to be able to do that on my own terms. And I also referenced some others, you know, like uh, DHHS Secretary Cody Kinsley has said the same thing about his experience. So, you know, I shared my story as part of, I think, a larger floor speech about the impacts on the people that we had heard from in the various committee meetings, just to connect those stories with, you know, stories of a person standing here in the Senate in the hopes that folks would understand the real life impacts of what we're doing and think about the consequences for the kids in our schools now who are going through the same things that, you know, some of us went through decades ago. Oftentimes, a legislator, their first floor speech is point of personal privilege, maybe, or to talk about a local bill or to rise in support of a colleague. This was very personal. Imagine this came up in caucus. Senator Grafstein, can you speak to the bill and tell your story? How, how did this come about, if you don't mind? I don't mind at all. I, I asked to speak on the bill. Um, okay. And, you know, and we're, it's not wasn't a question of um, permission, but sure. I, I expressed the desire to speak on the bill and that was supported by the caucus. Um, I guess to me, it, it was personal in a lot of ways. But as a lawyer, you do things that are deeply uncomfortable because you are trying to get a result for your client. Right. Standing up in court is deeply uncomfortable for me. I don't like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, you do it and you learn to do it because you're trying to get a different, you know, a better outcome for people that you're trying to support or, or represent. So I hesitated to include sort of the personal aspect of it, but I thought it was really important to do that in support of the larger argument about why this bill is bad for kids. So... Yes, it was. It was not um, my choice. I would have preferred that this come later or preferably never <laughs> mm-hmm. in the session, but it came when it came. And um, 
you know, my advocacy instincts kind of kicked in. There are different kinds of speeches at the General Assembly. Some, a legislator will get up and debate a speech, and you can just kind of hear commotion in the background. And Senate still doesn't televise a session, so I'm listening to the audio. I got the sense that rapt attention was being given to you. I know the vote did not happen the way you wanted it to happen, but did, did you feel your colleagues were listening? I thought people were being respectful and listening. Yes, yeah. that's that's the sense I got looking around. And it's hard, you know, in the moment when you're giving a speech and also kind of looking down at your notes now and then, it's hard to really kind of make eye contact and be that engaged with the folks. But I, I felt like people were being respectful and paying attention. And to your point, it's not that I expected a change in in anybody's vote. It certainly would have been lovely <laughs> to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important sometimes just to say what needs to be said, uh, but I definitely felt like um, folks are paying attention. And afterward, many, um, particularly my Republican colleagues, came up and acknowledged and uh, shook my hand and indicated their appreciation of the tone I took in the comments and were generally kind and supportive afterwards. So I think that's that says a lot about the effort at being respectful and being kind amongst the folks who were there. What's something that has surprised you the most about being an elected official? Well, first of all, I'm a lot funnier now. <laughs> Apparently, my jokes are great. Um, <clears throat> but I, the bar is on the ground. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, but but truly, like just that sort of sense of deference you get from people that you know, I'm the same exact person I was on November seventh, and but suddenly um, I'm getting more respect and more um, or respect is the wrong word, but there's just a different level of. I don't, I don't know the exact word, but I, so I guess I'll just stick with respect that, that there's a different um, kind of treatment that you get. Certainly in the building, um, I see how people might start to think that they're important <laughs> and that, um, and that maybe they're even more important than other people. Like I, I get how you can get a, um, an ego when people treat you like uh, everything you say is just super important and they are so deferential to you. So um, I'm too old to I think, be fooled by that at this point, mm-hmm. but um, but it has been surprising the extent of it, yeah. So you said earlier in the conversation that you needed to apologize to the policy team <laughs> at disability rights. I already I, regret that. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you have already felt what it's like to serve in a super minority. I, I don't, I, I think frustrating is not quite the word. I don't think I've been there long enough to you know, be justified in saying frustrating. It's a dance that is very intricate, and I don't know the steps to yet. You Mm -hmm. know, I think that there's a lot of ability that a lot of folks have to get things done, despite being in the super minority, and I'm trying to learn how they work. I'm trying to develop relationships. One thing I was really clear on coming in was that I understood that this role is about developing those relationships and um, demonstrating where you can be helpful and figuring out a path. There may be a day when I use the word frustrated. At this point, you know, I'm I'm somebody who likes to identify a problem and then figure out, okay, now how are we going to fix that problem? And this is not that process. Right. <laughs> it's right. a much different process. So that piece to me is a little, um, it's, it's taking getting used to. But your expertise also has to help you. Because, I mean, it is a place that values expertise. And if you come from the disability rights community, advocacy community, certainly legislators are going to look to you for advice. I hope so. And I'm trying to sort of make myself available and kind of meet with folks and explain where I'm coming from. I think part of coming from an advocacy role, though, is that sometimes there's a little bit of a a caution Mm -hmm. that 
are you here as an advocate or do you have a hat on as a legislator? So I'm trying to be really thoughtful about separating those roles whenever possible and working on solutions that might be related to things that I, you know, I'm also an advocate on, but understanding them with a, from a different perspective and from the perspective of getting enough votes to support something as opposed to, you know, winning an argument in court and, and um, trying to achieve things in, in kind of a legal context. I, I understand the different roles. And what I hope is that over time that people will come to understand that I understand the difference. So you have been on the outside looking in at politics, and now you're on the inside. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics, what would it be? So I've been dreading this question because I'm sure you've gotten now, I guess, over 100 responses to it. Um, and well, some took two wands, like Senator Mayfield. Some took two wands, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I was surprised that, I don't know if anybody's done this, but why wouldn't you use the wand to create 100 more wands? Right. Billy Richardson did that. Did he? Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure that he like, actively did that. He just kept talking. <laughs> right, right. Got it. So so I guess mine, and I, maybe this one has been used before, I don't know, I doubt it, is that it, that we would use the rules of evidence, mm-hmm. right? So that you'd have to have kind of an evidentiary basis. And where that comes from is, you know, we have this polarization where there's a problem, and I think sometimes the two political sides see the problem, and the immediate reaction is that it's the other guy's fault, or mm. there's some, you know, something we can blame. The rules of evidence require to actually get at what's the cause of a problem, and to me that's, you know, in whatever context, whether it's legislative or in advocacy, it's really looking for, let's find the root cause and fix what's happening here as opposed to putting a Band-Aid on the other, you know, on, on the wound. Um, so I think having to get at the root cause of problems really is a place where there is a lot of common ground. Uh, in, you know, most of the things, as you all know, that are before the General Assembly are not kind of political hot-button issues. They're just fundamental problems of where to put the dollars to make the most impact, that kind of thing. These are these are issues of causation <laughs> that the rules of evidence can help with. But I think also evidence includes hearing from people and that there has to be inputs from folks who are affected by the issues that we're working on. I would love for there to be, and I don't know if this is taking a second wand or not, but I think more transparency and engagement for folks to be able to participate in, the, in their democracy. And you mentioned, you know, the Senate not being... Um, video streamed and that sort of thing. I think there's a lot, a lot of space for us to really help people be more engaged and have more transparency around policymaking so that they not only feel a part of it, but actually understand how to get engaged. That was very original. Mm-hmm. It was. All right. Thank you. Yeah, way to go. Well, Senator Lisa Grafstein, we appreciate everything you are doing in the North Carolina General Assembly, your willingness to serve in the North Carolina Senate. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you both. This was a lot of fun. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. A couple days before Senator Grafstein made her first floor speech, you and I were in the Senate Rules Committee, or I should say we were outside the Senate Rules Committee because it was so packed over there. There were lots of people trying to get into the committee to speak on both sides of the Parent Bill of Rights bill, the bill she was speaking about. 
her first speech. And it was something notable about Senator Grafstein that night. She does not serve on the Senate Rules Committee. She has an office right there on the first floor, just a couple feet away from the committee room. And she saw all these folks just kind of gathered around. And she took her basket of candy that she keeps in her office, and she went around to every single one of those North Carolinians and offered them some candy. Whether they were for the bill or against the bill, she appreciated that they were there, and she wanted to give them some candy. And I thought it was such a nice moment. And that is when we met her. You know, she came around, took a piece of candy, and we talked. And a very pleasant senator. And I think is approaching the Senate in the right way. Best of luck to her as she forms these relationships with her colleagues and gets things done for her district and the issues that she cares about. Tweet of the Week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Jacob Shirley. He's at J-A-C-B-O Shirley on Twitter. He is an intern in Senator Corbin's office, and it's a quote tweet of our kickball game last night. Mm -hmm. And it is Senator Rick Santorum kicking the ball. And he put, not on my 2023 bingo card to play kickball with Rick Santorum. <laughs> I'll note that he's the do politics better hashtag. So we're playing kickball last night behind the General Assembly. By the way, we play every other Wednesday. Yeah, if I have one more person that says they're not invited, Senator Woodard, (laughs) (laughs) when we have an open invitation to everyone, we're going to lose it. Everyone is invited. Yeah. We're not excluding anyone. Senator Woodard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Count that as two Senator Woodard mentions, Senator Woodard, because he is keeping a list of, of her mentions. So we're playing kickball. It's in the first inning, second inning. And Senator Rick Santorum, the conservative senator, Republican from Pennsylvania, now retired out of the Senate, presidential candidate. He is a spokesperson for the Committee of the States. I think he's a senior advisor. Oh, senior advisor. And our team is up to bat or up to kick, if you will. And I said, hey, Senator, appreciate you being in North Carolina. Would you like to play kickball with us? And Senator Santorum says, I'd like to take a kick. Gets up, kicks a double, scores a run, lots of high fives. It was just a fun moment. And last night's kickball game was great. We had a lot of folks play last night. I think we were well represented across interest groups. And then, you know, there were a lot of legislators there. Not all the legislators played because there were some events last night, but it was fun. It was fun. ACLU and John Locke Foundation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lydia Daniel, wife of Senator Warren Daniel. Of course, Senator Warren Daniel came and played a little later. He had a meeting. Senator Woodard stopped by, but just complained that he didn't get the invite. Mm -hmm. That's a third mention. Go ahead. (laughs) Senator Mary Wills Bodie, she stopped by, but she had to go to her freshman dinner, the 
Mm-hmm. The bipartisan dinner that Senator Lee stopped by. Senator Lee, Chase Horton, who's a lobbyist, he used to work for Senator Lee. He dropped by. We had Lisa Martin. She didn't know. Is it five o'clock? She's a lobbyist. But we had what eight on eight last night. Yeah, that was a good turnout. But the star, obviously. Oh my goodness! Was Carl? Carl. Yeah. Carl Gilmore. He asked, he's like, where's that lady I hit last year? And it, long-time listeners of the pod know she's dead. <laughs> he killed her with the kickball. And then just shrugged her his shoulders as they wheeled her off in the <laughs> hearse. <laughs> Carl. But Carl was such a stud last night. I mean, he was running the base. Senator Warren Daniel was wearing a suit, so he needed Carl to run for him, to which Carl did. Carl is going to take an extra base. <laughs> and not always get it. <laughs> yeah. But you miss 100%, 100% of the shots you don't take. Carl will yell at you, too, on the field. Give me the ball! Throw the ball! Uh, Carl works for Speaker Tim Moore and Representative Kelly Hastings. He's a policy aide. You might see him in local government, state government committee meetings. Uh, he's a staffer over there. Good guy. And a real dogged kickball player. But, you know, we do want you to come out and play kickball with us. I get this question a lot, too. Brooke Medina over at John Locke, she asked yesterday, she's like, hey, I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not a legislator. I'm not a staffer there. Can I play? Of course you can play. And Brooke Medina did come out and play. It was so much fun. We had one participant say that she was nervous because she didn't think she'd be able to play well. She played, one, she played great. Number two, none of us really play. Mm-mm. We're like, not, it's not like really a breeding ground for athletes. Right, right. It's just a lot of fun. And, you know, we don't talk politics out there. We might make some jokes. I think Joe Coletti over at House Oversight got hit in the head with the ball. and In uh, the face. In the face. Didn't Stephen B. Webb do that? <laughs> Steve- who hit him? I don't know. I think it was, yeah, it was Stephen B. Webb who works for the North Carolina <laughs> Home <B>. build- Builders. <laughs> the Home B. Builders. Yeah. Stephen, for, he really wants us to use the B in Stephen B. Webb. So we'd appreciate it if everyone did it. Yeah, yeah. if you see Stephen B. Webb in the It's a building, weird thing. He's obsessed with it. He is. In fact, if you go to his Twitter handle, it's Stephen B. Webb. <laughs> no one's out there lobbying, and everyone's getting along, and it's great. So we want you to come out every other Wednesday. I think the next time will be March 15th. It may be cold that week. Everybody's saying we're supposed to get a cold front. Yeah. We'll I'm no meteorologist, ear. so I don't know. <laughs> we'll play it by ear. If the weather's good, we play. If it's not good, we don't play. If we're not playing, maybe we'll get drinks or something. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. This week, I had lunch in the General Assembly cafeteria. Something happened there that got you and I thinking about what a nightmare this situation would be. So you had lunch with a group of lobbyists, and one of the lobbyists' parents were present. Yeah, it was the social worker day on Wednesday. And I sit down, the lobbyist says, "Uh, Brian, my parents are here. They're here for Social Worker Day. Would you like to meet them? I met them. And then you came down later and I said, yeah, I met this lobbyist's parents. And you said... That would be my nightmare. (laughs) You think so? I think so, First of all, I lobby with my dad every day. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Remember that guy on the street called you my pops? <laughs> yeah, he pops. I, I do think it would be disturbing if Philip and Cindy came and lobbied with you. Boy, that'd be rough on you. Why would it be disturbing for you? I don't know if I'd like Philip here. <laughs> Philip, You're so afraid of my dad. He plays mind games. <laughs> And I think I'm older than Philip, actually. (laughs) This is the thing. You always seem like you're trying to impress him. (laughs) Like my 15-year-old boyfriend or something. No, no, no. no, Because I got to tell you a story. I had just met your father. This was like seven years ago. By the way, you just celebrated an anniversary. Yeah, six years. Six years. Six years ago. We're we're at City Club. I'm meeting your parents for the first time. There was another lobbyist there. (laughs) And your dad kept referring to this lobbyist as another name this lo- lobbyist barb yeah called him barb <laughs> right over and over and i'm watching this kid he's a younger lobbyist just take it <laughs> just take it and your dad just he plays mind games yeah he does there was a time we went to the beach you guys had rented the house near our house and your dad called me up and he said do you have <laughs> A, I forgot about a, a bicycle pump, <laughs> and I said, "I, I, I do, Philip. I'll bring it over." Your dad <laughs> sits. He's sitting in this garage of this rented house. By the way, the reason the tires were not <laughs> inflated, and the reason it didn't have a seat on it, was because the people who owned the homes didn't want their bicycles to be used. But your father had figured out a way to get the bicycles. He wanted to pump up the tires. He's going to put a seat on it. And he did that. But, all right, so I come over, and your dad <laughs> just says, well, there's the bike. And I, I have my toolkit. And I suddenly realized not only did he want my tools, he wants me <laughs> to do this, you, do this crime for him. <laughs> did you say anything? I just said, well, yeah, okay, I'll get to work exactly. here. Exactly, beta. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it reminds me of so if I go home like the one place everybody in our town goes is Walmart right we have a Walmart we got one when I was in high school it was a pretty big deal and um, <clears throat> if I go with my mom it's a one to one and a half hour venture okay. obviously the Walmart is in town it's not far away but my mother will talk to everyone and everyone wants to talk to her so we'll just we'll go a little bit stop go a little bit stop it's 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 just a time commitment go with my dad (laughs) someone will come up to him my dad will look these people dead in the face (laughs) and say i don't have time for you right now and walk off (laughs) and like i really respect that about him he's (laughs) cold-blooded Remember when we went to the Fat Pelican at Carolina Beach and he's, <laughs> you and I were talking. What did he say? Something about your relationship is weird. <laughs> right. So if your father was in the building, actually, he might be a good lobbyist. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh-huh. Your mom is so sweet. So sweet. Angel. She, oh, she's an angel. She would bring candied pecans and all that good stuff and she would you know, care about what you were, you know, eating right and taking care of yourself. And uh, she would just be so happy to meet people. (laughs) Yeah. Your father would not be impressed with the general assembly. In fact, when my mom was here, maybe about a month ago, a little longer than that, she lived lived with me for a bit after surgery. 
And she was going on a walk one day. General Assembly was not in session, but the security was there. You know how there's a security guard under the building. Mm -hmm. And so my mom walked. She came back. And I said, oh, how was your walk? And she said, it was so great. I saw the nicest man. He said peace and blessings to me. And he was just so sweet. And I was like, that's Russell. And I told Russell. And he remembered my mom, too. That's funny. My parents have never really understood what, what I you do, do at all. So my mom has dementia now, so it's fair. She doesn't really know. But even when she didn't have dementia, had no clue. And my father, who's now deceased, never understood. So let's go back to 2008. I'm laughing. It's not something funny to be laughing at. I'm thinking of <laughs> your... Um, when your dad passed, uh-huh. and, uh, what's her name, was sending you all those texts. Oh, Kelly. And it said, you're made up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, when my dad passed away, I have this evil stepsister who's really not a stepsister, but she's just a train wreck of a person. Anyway, she's like, you know, as most screwed up families do and someone passes we start blaming yeah she sent me this text message you and your made-up job <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that that's, sorry i didn't mean to bring that up no it's a funny story yeah so anyway props to kinston north carolina so this is 2008 2009 sometime i'm at the general assembly and i get a call from the office of governor beverly purdue it was 2009 because she had just gotten sworn in. I'm thinking, why is the governor calling me? I call the governor's office. Hey, yeah, we're turning a call here. Someone needs me at the governor's office. What's going on? They said, yeah, your father, Harold Lewis, has called us. <laughs> he thinks you work for Governor Purdue. Uh, can you call your dad? So that happened. Aww. Yeah, yeah. So I called my dad. And I, even then, I was like, Dad, I don't work for the governor. I'm a lobbyist. What is that? What do you do? I don't know. If I had t- took my parents to the General Assembly when they were, you know, my mom had it together. My dad was like, I don't, I don't know. If your parents were to lobby for one thing, what would they lobby for? Like everyone's parent has an issue that they bring up time and time again. I know my mom's. You go ahead. My mom would have been with the... Uh, fetal heartbeat people this week that is her issue Mm -hmm. she is completely passionate about that issue my dad (laughs) oh my goodness so my dad was sometimes on the other side of the law on some things (laughs) he thought that they should have a separate road for drunk drivers (laughs) (laughs) that's a concept (laughs) yeah let the mopeds, the drunk mopeds, the drunk drivers drive on a certain road. And my dad also had a working theory that there would be fewer accidents on those roads. Oh. So that would have been his idea, I think, to take to the General Assembly. I don't know if he'd get a bill sponsor or not, mm-hmm. but uh, he would certainly work it with passion. What about your parents? Well, my parents live in Illinois, and my mom cannot miss an opportunity to talk about how our vote doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, because it's Illinois. Chicago, and yes, and she actually is like a judge, elections judge at our local courthouse. So she's really passionate about elections. But 
will tell you time and time and time again about how the whole state of Illinois is red except Chicago, and she would really like them to, you know, fall into the lake. Yeah, I could see that. Mm -hmm. And your dad. (laughs) Just to be left alone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My dad doesn't even vote. (laughs) He doesn't vote. That is so interesting that he doesn't vote. We've talked about this before. He does not vote. And my mom, like, you know... Active every election day. Yeah, and volunteers or as a precinct judge. And and your dad doesn't vote. And you told me he has this really zen kind of viewpoint of voting. Don't vote, and he doesn't complain. And this is a guy who's business. I mean, he's he's an investor, right? So, you know, economic policy affects him. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't vote. I don't know what to tell you. Wow. All right. Well... Loved meeting the parents of our lobbyist friend this week. and uh, We'd like to hear, what is it that your parents would lobby for, your parents' one strong opinion? I think this could be entertaining. Mm -hmm. And has anyone ever taken their parents with them? Well, okay, I will say I have taken my parents, not on a legislative day, but my parents always come in for 4th of July And so one year we had just ended session, you know, late night before my parents show up, you know, a couple hours later and I took them over there and they met the speaker. Yeah. And now that I think about it, Scott, you know, there are some firms down there where the parents and the children are lobbying together. You you got the Brubakers, the Metcalfs. Us. Us. Yeah, so... You say I'm third generation. <laughs> yeah, you're third generation. You're my granddaughter. I'm Pops. Right, take Pops Little Louie. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to talking to y'all about the news next week. We'll keep you updated on what's happening. In the meantime, feel free to rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening and tell us what you think your parents would lobby for we'd love to hear from you we will chat with you next friday but in the meantime get outside enjoy some good food and remember to do politics better